Thank you, orchestra and Jared. Thank you for using your gifts and talents and leading us this morning while Matt is away. And Matt will be back with us next Sunday. Um, Let me ask you a a question. What are some of the great rivalries that we know of today? Can you name a few? I'll give you a hint. You got Republican versus Democrat. You've got Auburn versus Alabama. I tell you what, we're going to have some interaction. I want you to take 30 seconds, and the person next to you, I want you to see how many rivalries you can come up with in the next 30 seconds. Ready? Go. All right, did you come up with a few? Hopefully you didn't say one another, all right? That'll be a, <laughs> that, that'll be a good thing. Well, while rivalries are mostly bitter, if you go back to the root of those rivalries, a lot of the times they, they really started from a place where they really respected one another, but then they kind of broke off. That's where we're going to be this morning as we're looking at the first part of John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open to John chapter 4. If not, there should be a pew Bible in front of you. And uh, we're going to look at the first part of John chapter 4. We're going to see that Jesus is leaving Judea and he's on his way to Galilee, but he's going to go through Samaria and he's leaving because a rivalry has developed. Now, who's the rivalry between? It's not between Jesus and someone else, but it's between Jesus' followers and John the Baptist's followers. Now, the crazy thing here is the rivalry has developed over the issue of baptism, something which is crazy because they were all on the same team, right? But they begin to argue and they begin to worry about which team is getting more attention than the other team. Reminds me of when we have churches in the city of Decatur where there's one on every corner and we act like we're in competition with one another. We're all on the same team, friends. I had the, the blessing of, of having lunch on, I think it was Thursday, with five other Baptist pastors. And we all said, let's come together. Most of them are newer. Hard to believe I'm one of the older pastors here. I'm having been here five years. Um, all of them had been here less than two or three years. And we said, man, what, what if we came together and we laid down our, our rivalries and said, we're all in this together. When we get to heaven, there's not a first Baptist or a first Methodist or an epic. We're all believers. Amen? And Jesus. So let's read about this rivalry that had developed between Jesus's followers and John the Baptist's followers. Look at the first six verses in John chapter 4. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well where it was about the sixth hour. So here we see that some of John the Baptist's disciples, they were disturbed that Jesus was receiving more attention than their leader. And since Jesus was receiving the attention, that meant that their leader, John the Baptist, that he wasn't receiving this attention So Jesus, in order to avoid this rivalry becoming a public rivalry, says, you know what, guys, I'm just going to leave. I'm going to leave here, and I'm going to go to Galilee. But on his way to Galilee, he actually goes through Samaria. 
And you say, what's the big deal about that? The big deal about going through Samaria is the Jews and the Samaritans, you, you remember this if you were raised in church, they hated each other. They couldn't stand one another. They felt that they would, even if you had to get somewhere and it was quicker to go through Samaria, they would rather travel all the way around it because they didn't even want to have any kind of contact or interaction with the Samaritans because they felt they were unholy. So we wouldn't even want to be next to them. But notice what John says in verse 4. There's something really interesting that he points out there. He says, and he had to pass through Samaria. See, Jesus was compelled to go to Samaria. He was compelled that there was this village, there was a city that he had to go to. It wasn't just that it was a shortcut, but it was a divine appointment that God, before the creation of time, had set aside that this is where Jesus had to go. And notice what John tells us about Jesus in verse 6. It says that he was what? It says that Jesus was wearied. Now, a lot of times as we study Scripture, it's easy for us to remember, and it's easy for us to reflect on the fact that Jesus was 100% God, right? That he had godly powers, he could perform miracles, and, and we focus on that a lot, as we should, because he was unique and that he was 100% God. But sometimes I think that we forget about the part that he also was 100% what? Man. Meaning that he struggled with some of the limitations that you and I have that we live in this body and we live in the flesh. Meaning that he got hungry at times. He got tired. He had emotions. And so it's only natural here that the, the, the Bible tells us after they've been traveling, he and his disciples, for six hours, and now that it's noon, that he's what? He's tired. Of course he is. And that's when we're introduced in verse 7 to the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman who's sitting there at Jacob's well. Look with me at verse 7. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. In the 90s, there was a, na a national discussion around a law that was called three strikes and you're out. Prior to that law, judges would take into consideration uh, the crime that a past criminal had committed before he or she determined what that punishment would be, how long, what that sentence would be. Most states, they were given their own opportunity to decide what that, what that sentence was going to be. They, there wasn't a national law that was there. That's where this discussion in the 1990s came about, three strikes and you're out. Many states, as a result of that, they passed a law that said once criminals had committed two violent felonies, that by the time they committed that third violent felony, that they would be sent to life in prison. Now, many states, when they passed that law, they obeyed by that, and they said it would be violent felony criminals. California, however, they forgot, and they, or they didn't forget, they didn't put those words violent or felony. And as a result, some people were sent to life in prison for misdemeanors, for crimes that weren't violent. While most states got it right, California didn't. Does that surprise any of us that California, I mean, come on, right? What they said was that one mistake, it doesn't define someone forever. But if a criminal cannot learn from their past mistakes, they're locked up for good. Three strikes, and you're out. What you're going to see this morning is that before this Samaritan woman even opens her mouth, 
before she has her first interaction with Jesus, she already had three strikes against her. What were the three strikes she had against her? The first strike was she, she was a woman. She was a female in a male-dominated world. And in Jesus' day, females, the only, only reason they existed was to please men around them. Their thoughts, their cares, their ambitions, no one gave a second thought if you were a female. In fact, most of the time, they were just considered someone's possession. They were just considered an object to other people. Strict rabbis, they would go so far as they would say, we are not even going to have a conversation. We're not even going to speak to a woman in public. But look ahead at what Jesus does. Look at verse 11. The woman said to him, meaning Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Friends, look at this. Jesus not only spoke to this woman, he asked to use this woman's drinking utensil. You say, what's the big deal about this? Because the Jews believed that anything that the, that the Samaritans held, that it was considered unclean and unholy. And if you touched it, guess what you became? You became defiled. You became unclean. So Jesus goes as far as saying, not only am I going to talk to you, but I'm willing to take on your unholiness. I'm willing to be defiled so that I can have this relationship with you. Strike one, she was a woman. Strike two, she was a Samaritan. The Samaritans hated the Jews. While the Samaritans, they felt like they were a, a part or they were somehow associated with the Jews, the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. They thought that they were unclean, that they were unholy, that they were defiled. So we know that the Samaritans, they only believed in what we have as the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the teachings of the prophets. They didn't believe in Psalms or Proverbs. Uh, the Jews and the Samaritans, they even had separate temples where they would worship. The Jews went and they worshiped at the temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans went to Mount Gerizim. And the Jews eventually actually destroyed the Samaritans' temple. A woman, a Samaritan, strike three, she was a sinner. But not only was she a sinner, she was the worst of all sinners in Jesus' day. You know why? Because she was a sexual sinner. Other sins they could look past. We're not getting you past that one. A woman, a Samaritan, the worst of all sinners. Just a little bit of background of this Samaritan woman that Jesus begins to have this conversation with. And what was she doing there? She came to the well to do what? To, to draw water. Nothing unusual about that. That's what um, a lot of the task that many women back in Jesus' day would be, that they would come and they would draw water for the day or for the week for their family and they would carry it back. It's still a custom carried out by many in different countries today. What's unusual about this story is not that this woman was at this well drawing water. What's unusual is the fact that she comes at noon. The common time of the day to come and draw water was during the cool of the evening, not during the hottest part of the day. But why is it that this woman is coming um, at noon during the hottest part of the day to draw water? Well, quite possibly, it's because she wanted to avoid the harassment of the other women that knew about her sin and that would just give her a difficult time of why she was there. Not only is it unusual that she's coming at noon, there's also one other thing that's unusual, and that's that, that she, in order for her to come to Jacob's well, most uh, biblical scholars believe that she passed at least 
five other wells or five other sources of water. Why? Because she was an outcast. Because she would rather walk a further distance, she would rather come at the hottest part of the day rather than face the humiliation of other women who were, who were harassing her at this closer well where they probably knew her past. They probably knew about her. So I will go at a hotter time of the day. I will go further away just because I have all this shame in my life and I don't want to face the humiliation of the people that know who I am. And as I'm just envisioning this story, and as I'm trying to, to realize, so many times we read the Bible and we think, oh, that's a great story. This really happened. Everything in this word is true. So what was it like when this woman, she comes to this well, and, and in my mind, she must have been a little bit put out to think, man, why is someone at this well? I came at this time of the day. I came farther away. I thought no one would be here, especially if her desire was to be what? To be alone and not to face conversation with other people. But then in my mind, I just think, well, maybe she saw that it was a man and she thought, well, at least it's a man and he won't have anything to do with me. He won't even speak to me. He'll ignore me. As long as he doesn't abuse me, it'll be okay here. But friends, what she doesn't know is it's Jesus that's sitting next to her. Jesus is the one sitting next to her at this well. And so when Jesus asked her for a drink, look at verse eight, I mean, excuse me, verse nine, look at how she responds. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This woman, she must have expected for Jesus to give her the silent treatment. Don't you think? She knew she had three strikes. She had low self-esteem. She had a low self-image about herself. And surely she thinks when I come and I see this man, he's just going to ignore me. He's not going to talk to me at all. What do you think she thought? Jesus said, hey, will you give me a drink? And friends, time out here for a second. Don't miss the incredible act of humility that Jesus is displaying here. This is incredibly radical what's happening here. And I don't know if we can comprehend because we don't understand the culture here. But by Jesus, not only talking, but interacting and being willing to have this conversation with a woman, with a Samaritan, with a sexual sinner, he is willing to risk any sense of good reputation that he might have with the Jews. Why? Because he loves this woman. God in the flesh. He even humbled himself to be in need. He didn't have to be in need. He didn't have to travel six hours to stop this well. But God, I think he preordained that he was going to be in need when he comes to this well. Why? So that this woman could serve him. This is an amazing picture. But she doesn't notice the humility of Jesus here. Instead, I think she's afraid. She's intimidated by what's happening. So instead, she instantly reminds Jesus, hey, listen, we can't talk to one another. You're a man. I'm a woman. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Look what she says in verses 10 and 11. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I love what Jesus does here. Do you see how he just flipped the tables on her? Jesus was the one who was hungry, thirsty. He's the one coming to her asking for a drink. And now he asked her, hey, are you thirsty? Hey, do I have something that I, have something that I want to give you? But by her response in verse 11, 
It's clear that she didn't understand what this living water was. It's clear she didn't understand that Jesus was talking about forgiveness, that Jesus is talking about acceptance. Jesus is talking about looking past your sin and loving you for who you are. Jesus is saying, I want to accept you. I want you to receive this gift of salvation. See, Jesus is telling this woman that nothing will ever satisfy her longings. Nothing will ever satisfy her dissatisfactions except for a long and continuous drink of God, which comes through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later in John, Jesus will say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. But let's be careful here. It's easy to read these stories and to look down on the characters of the Bible, isn't it? How do they miss it? How do they respond that way? How do they understand what Jesus was talking about? But friends, don't we do the same thing every day? Don't we try to find other things in our life that we think, if I finally get that, if I finally obtain that, then I'll be happy, then I'll be fulfilled, then I'll be satisfied. If I can finally get that car, if I can finally get that house, if I can finally get that lake house, if I can finally get that second, third, fourth marriage, then I'll be happy. If my child will finally get on that all-star team, if they'll finally get that scholarship, if they'll finally be recognized, if they'll finally be cool, then I'll be fulfilled. Then I'll be happy as a person. For some of us, it's different stages of life. We think when we're teenagers, oh, when I can be 16 and drive a car, that's when I'll be happy. Then it's when I can go to college, I'll be happy. Then it's when I get a job, when I get married, when I have kids, when I'm retired. We think that there's some magical stage of life that once we get there, finally it's going to fulfill all these longings that our hearts desire. But friends, the fact is, We are constantly trying to fulfill our need for happiness with things that just will not satisfy our hearts. I love Krispy Kreme donuts. I don't know if you can be a Christian and not like Krispy Kreme donuts, all right? I'm just saying, maybe you can slip through. I don't know. Here's the interesting thing about Krispy Kreme donuts to me. I don't care how hungry you are. You can go into Krispy Kreme. Now, why are you going if the light's not on? I don't know. Just wait a couple hours. Go to Dunkin' Donuts and you'll, you'll realize why you're going back to Krispy Kreme. Um, but, but when you go in, you can be starving. And you can eat one or two donuts. You can eat five dozen donuts. What happens 15 minutes later? You're hungry again, aren't you? Of course you are. Friend, listen to me. When you try to find meaning, when you try to find fulfillment, when you try to find happiness in the things of this life, and when you try to find fulfillment in anything other than Jesus, it's like trying to get full eating Krispy Kreme donuts. It's just not going to happen. You're trying to get full on the fluff and the stuff of this world when Jesus is saying there's something so much more that's finally going to fill this longing in your heart. But like every other story that we've read about in the Gospel of John, Jesus, many times he's speaking in metaphors, but the unbeliever, all that he or she knows to do is to try to translate it in a literal sense, and it just doesn't make sense. That's why this woman, she says, how can you draw this living water? You're crazy because you don't have a bucket. You don't have a rope. How are you going to get this water that you're talking about? She's skeptical that this stranger that she just met, that he is even able to actually provide this living water that he he, he claims that he can offer. Verse 12, she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. 
Then Jesus goes on to explain more about this water in verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Then watch this. Jesus is going to turn the conversation around. Now he's going to speak to her and a truth that's going to catch her off guard. And so we've been talking about living water. Now watch what happens in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. In one paragraph, Jesus has gone from being polite to what we would say he just got real, didn't he? He's about to get real with this woman here. Everything that this woman had been trying to hide in two sentences, Jesus exposed. She didn't want Jesus to know this. In two sentences, he exposed that she had five husbands and the man that she's living with right now, that's not even her husband. So when Jesus tells her, look, I want you to call your husband, what he's doing is he is exposing the heart of her issue, which is her sin. And Jesus, right here in this moment, he is providing this woman an opportunity to confess her sins and to receive forgiveness, friends, because there is no salvation that is found apart from first repenting of your sins, of turning from your sin and turning to Christ. And look at her response. She gives him credit for the statement. She never comes out, though, and says, yes, you're right, does she? But she does say, hey, well, you must be a, a what? A, a prophet. So in essence, she said, okay, I, I get what you're saying, and, and you're right. I'm admitting that what you're saying is accurate. But then notice how she's going to pivot here. She's going to pivot from talking about her personal life. We're good about this, aren't we? To deflecting it. Now I'm going to show you how much theology I know, Jesus. Look what she says in verses 20 through 25. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Praise God for this next statement. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. I don't have time to go into all the details about the different places and the temples where they worship, but know that they worshiped the Samaritans and Jews in different places. And the main point of what Jesus is trying to express here is he's trying to say, listen, the heart of the issue is not where to worship. That, that, that's irrelevant here. But Jesus, he does something here that's shocking. And again, because we don't understand the culture, I'm not sure in just reading this quickly, we can fully grasp how radical what Jesus does next is. But understand, this would have shocked and probably disappointed most of the readers of John's gospel when they read this, what happens next. This woman, she tells Jesus, she tries to show him how much she, she knows about the Messiah. I know that he's coming. I know that he knows all things. I know that when he comes, he's going to be a teacher, much like uh, the, the prophet Moses. But then notice what happens next. 
Verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You say, Blake, what's the big deal? What's such a big deal that Jesus says, well, hey, Samaritan woman, I'm the Messiah. Friends, Jesus hasn't said this to anyone else yet. In all the other miracles, all the other chapters and verses, chapters one through three, Jesus performs a miracle. And what does he tell the person he performs a miracle to? Go quietly and don't tell anyone else what's happened. But here, this Samaritan woman, this outcast, three strikes, he freely chooses to be the very first one that he explicitly says, I am the Messiah. Why is it that the Samaritan got to be the first one that he reveals his identity to? Truth is, I can't tell you with all certainty. I mean, we've all got theories. Some people say, well, it was because the, the Jesus is trying to show that the Jews, that, that, that salvation is not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Samaritans, it's for the entire world. Some people say, well, well maybe by, by telling the Samaritan woman he's prophesying, he's foreshadowing that the Jews and Samaritans will eventually come together, that um, <clears throat> this will happen through the Christian church. We don't know for certain why, but there are certain con- some, some conclusions that we can draw as to what happened when Jesus has his conversation with this woman who had three strikes against her. I want you to write these three things down. I hope that we'll remember this as a church family. Number one, the first conclusion we can draw is that what society tossed aside, Jesus valued. Remember the three strikes? Strike one was that she was a woman. She was considered someone's property. She was just someone else's possession. But to Jesus, the very first one, he explicitly shares that he's the Messiah. Society said, you're not valuable. Jesus said, you're the most important right now. Number two, where the religious leaders drew lines, Jesus ignored those divisions. The fact that she was a Samaritan to the Jew, there was no way she could have salvation. There was no way that that she could have this relationship with God. Not to Jesus. Number three, what society said was unsalvageable, Jesus came to save. Remember, she wasn't just any type of sinner. She was the worst of all sinners. But to Jesus, even in the midst of her sin, she had value and she had worth. Before I leave, before we wrap up the sermon this morning, there's one other thing I just I have to point out because I think it applies, it applies to me, and maybe you'll think it applies to you as well. If you look back in chapter three, we spent three weeks in chapter three, and Jesus has this long, extensive conversation with one person. Remember his name? Nicodemus. We remember Nicodemus, that he was a religious leader, that he was an influential leader, that he was a powerful person, um, that he knew the Old Testament. Compare that with the Samaritan woman in chapter four. From the wrong side of the tracks. A sinner of the worst kind. Now be honest with me here for a second. If you had to pick which of the two, Nicodemus or the Samaritan woman, that Jesus would have revealed himself first to, would you pick the woman? Think about these two characters here. 
If you had to pick which of the two is most likely to immediately have a relationship with Jesus, would you think it would have been Nicodemus or would you have picked the Samaritan woman? Jesus chose the Samaritan woman. Now, I believe that later in his life that Nicodemus did come to faith in Christ. We know that he was there at the time of Jesus' death. But friends, why is it easier for this woman to find salvation than Nicodemus? I think it's in part because she had a greater sense of her need. Nicodemus, he had so much pride. He had so much knowledge. He had so much power. I think it was difficult for him to admit that he maybe could have been wrong about what it took to have this relationship with God. I think that Nicodemus, he didn't think his sins were that bad. And even the sins that I do have, well, I can make up for them. I can just do some good works. I can memorize some more scripture. I can do some more good deeds. I can keep going to the temple and then surely God will forgive me and then I'll I'll have the salvation that I'm longing for. Not this woman. This woman knew that she was in need. She had been told probably most of her life that she wasn't good enough for anyone, especially that she wasn't good enough for God. But I love the irony here. Her entire life, this woman had been trying to hide her true self from other people. But then at the very moment in which she discovers her true sinfulness, it is at that exact moment that she finds salvation from Jesus himself. For she didn't understand everything. She didn't attend 200 church services. She didn't read 50 theology books and then come to Jesus. No, she simply responded to Jesus. She had this interaction. She knew who he was, and boom, she follows Jesus. And look what she does after this interaction. We'll close with this. This is the proof that she had been changed. The first thing she does is she left what she was doing. Scripture says she left her water jar and she went back to her city. What, that water jar meant nothing, nothing compared to following Jesus. I'd traveled all this way. I'd come during the hottest part of the day, but I'd, I'll, I'll leave all of that because what Jesus had just revealed to me. The second thing we see is that she went to her hometown and she testified about what had happened. That's what disciples do. They tell other people about Jesus. Remember chapter one, what does Philip and Andrew do? As soon as they hear about Jesus, they go back and they tell other people. Third, many people believed in Jesus because of her testimony. We're going to look at that specifically next week. Three strikes. Not out according to Jesus. Aren't you thankful for that? Let me bring this in for a landing so we can all celebrate our moms. Friends, if you're here this morning and you think you act like you've got your act all together, you've got so much knowledge, you've got everything, so at least that's the appearance you're giving, and you think that if Jesus walked in today, you'd be the first person he'd come to and he'd say, I'm so proud of your knowledge, I'm so proud of, of who you are, I'm so proud of all that you've done, I'm so impressed with your Sunday school knowledge. This needs to be a warning for you. Let this passage be a warning. Remember, it wasn't Nicodemus who came to know Christ first. Jesus wasn't impressed with his knowledge of the Old Testament. No, it was the Samaritan woman. For others of you, this is great news. Friends, it means it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter what you did last night. It doesn't matter what's going through your mind. That that you are never beyond the grasp of Jesus rescuing you and granting you salvation. Some people think, well, I can never come to that church. I can never come to Jesus because he'll never accept me. He'll never forgive me. He can't look past all my mistakes. I, I can't even forgive myself. Friends, if that's where you are, that's the best place you need to be to begin a relationship with Jesus. Woe is us for us to think, oh, well, God, you sure are lucky to have us. 
man, God, I know you're proud of me. But when we get to the point where we say, God, I don't know how you love me. I don't know how you look past my sin. I can't believe that I'm your child. That's when we understand what grace really is about. And if you've never trusted Jesus for salvation, you think that he never could love you, learn from the Samaritan woman. There are never too many strikes against you. It is never too late to trust Jesus. And for him to say, you're forgiven, you're my child, you're my daughter, you're my son, you're a joint heir with Christ. He loves you and he wants you to be seen as the child of God that he created you to be. Friend, today, if you haven't already, would you Receive Christ as your Savior? Would you reject the shame and the guilt that the world, or maybe if I know you well enough, that you have put on yourself? And would you let that be on the cross? And would you find a loving Savior who's coming that says, don't come to me clean, I'll clean you up. Don't worry about getting all cleaned up. I'll love you just as you are. I died for that sin. I died for that mess that you're in. You don't have to clean yourself up and come to Jesus. He'll take care of that himself. He already did on the cross. But for the rest of us, maybe you trusted Jesus a long time ago in your heart. You've turned away from him. And you think, well, I'm just ashamed to come back. I can't come back to this relationship. Understand, Jesus never walked away. You're not walking, wondering. You're not that prodigal son coming back saying, well, I hope he's there. Jesus is there waiting and longing and desiring for you to come back into this relationship. Friends, what a privilege it is to be in this relationship with God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that you have so graciously displayed for us. That no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, we are never beyond your grasp. Lord, I pray that if there is someone here today that has never trusted you as Savior, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would reach into the depths of their heart and that you would show them how loved, how valuable, how special they are because you sent your Son to die for them. Lord, if there's someone here today dealing with the guilt and the shame of their past, Lord, I pray that you give them a picture of the cross. The shame and the guilt that you went through so that we could be free. So that we might be called pure, holy, spotless, without blemish. And would we live in that victory today? Would we live each and every day that you have given us, making the most of every opportunity to share the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. We love you so much and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.